Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. I love that anthem so much. I got so wrapped up in it, I left my sermon on the bench. And if you think the sermon would be shorter if I left all my notes back there, you'd be wrong about that. Hey, um, New Testament scholar Gene Boring, isn't that an unfortunate name for a scholar? I am Dr. Boring. Um, Brilliant scholar, though. He is convinced, and he's convinced me, I think he's right, that the Gospel of Mark is written in three sections. The first section is from the very beginning to the middle of the eighth chapter, and the last section begins with chapter 11. It's, it's the last week of Jesus' life. Chapter 11 begins Palm Sunday and goes through the resurrection. But the middle section, from the middle of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10, is the section where Jesus describes his purpose in life, that he, he has come uh, to, to journey to Jerusalem and to be crucified for the salvation of the world. He will be handed over dead and, and raised. And he communicates to his followers that that's not only his journey, but, but that that's our journey too to sacrifice for the good of the world. And, and in the midst of all of this teaching, his disciples aren't quite getting it. His disciples are asking him questions like, do you think we're as great as we think we are? We think we're wonderful every day. Do you, do you, can, can we be rewarded when you come into your kingdom? Can you put us on the board? Uh, we, th- we think we'd be good on the board if you would do that. They're asking those kind of questions, and Jesus is just, it's in the text. He goes, they don't, they don't get it, this section. And, and this middle section where Jesus is teaching what it means to be his follower, it begins and ends with Jesus opening the eyes of the blind. It's not too subtle that all of us need to have our eyes opened uh, to this teaching of his. And this, this last story in, in this middle section is the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And I find it remarkable. I kind of geeked out on it a little bit this week. You'll have to bear with me. But as we come to the text, first uh, join me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, apart from your word, we have no life. So speak to us. Open our eyes that we might live. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Listen to this. They came to Jericho as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. 
When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So one of the things that is inescapable for people is people live in a larger culture. We all do. There are different cultures, and we can see the differences in culture, but we all live within a larger culture. So years ago, I was having, having lunch with a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, actually, and somehow the, the uh, conversation drifted to extended family, and he said, yeah, my, my brother's wife, she's crazy. I said, oh, oh, really? He said, yeah, none of us in our family can figure her out. We just can't figure her out. And then he said to me, he, he, said, he said, but she's Southern. <laughs> you know how crazy those Southern people can be. I said, actually, I have a good bit of insight into that. Yes, I, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. We all live in our own culture, right? It's inescapable. And it seems to me that, that as people of faith, when we look at our culture, whatever culture it is, when we look at our culture, there are two responsibilities when we look at it from the perspective of faith. One is to embrace the culture, to embrace what is good about the way we do things, to embrace what is right and holy, to love our place. That is a faithful and good response. If God can love our place well, so much that God chooses to dwell where we dwell, then we too are called to love our place. And yet at the same time, our faith, no matter what the culture is, our faith will require us, invite us to question the culture, to question at times. Both at the same time, we have those responsibilities. And I say that because if I understand the story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus correctly, then this is one of the places where Mark and Mark's congregation are debating the larger Greek culture in which they find themselves living. They're raising questions about cultural assumptions and values of, of the larger Greek culture. You, you know the early church lived in a collision of cultures. There's, there's Hebrew Jewish influence, there's Greek culture that is pervasive through the Roman Empire, and there's the rule of Rome, all of that. Mark's congregation is raising some questions about the Greek culture in which they're living. Their objections are not about issues like 
the, uh, the, the reality of slaves or the role of women, although there are places where the church addressed issues like that. Now, if I understand it, what is going on here is a basic debate with Greek philosophy about what it means to be a human being. What does it mean to be a human being? It was a blind man. He called out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. When he calls him, Jesus' followers do what they do. They shush him. They say, stop. Don't bother him. Why? Because Jesus, as Peter has already said, is the Messiah, for goodness sakes. He's the Messiah, and he can't be bothered by unimportant things and quite frankly, an un, a, a blind beggar is not important enough to bother the Messiah. That was the culture. But Jesus sees it differently. He calls the man and he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, my teacher, my rabbi. I want to see. Let me see. I want to see again. Now, there's something pretty striking about this passage, and what is striking is that Mark tells us the blind man's name. His name is Bartimaeus. And what's striking about that is Jesus heals a lot of people. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals the man with the unclean spirits. He heals the man with the withered hand. I could go on and on and on. He heals a lot of people, and never are we told any of their names. Not until now. It, not a single time until now. And I think that means that not only is the name important, I think the story is about the name. His name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. That's how it reads in, in your Bible, if you just looked at that, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. But that's redundant because in Aramaic, the language Jesus would have spoken, bar means son. So Bartimaeus actually translates son of Timaeus. So Mark writes it in Aramaic, and then repeats it in Greek, son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus, it's his name. And after a whole gospel of telling us nobody's name whom Jesus heals, like double speed bumps in the road, we get this name twice, son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. Mark wants to make sure not only do we know his name, but that his name is the point. Why? Well, Timaeus, it's, it's not a Jewish name. You won't find it in Scripture outside of this story. But it was a well-known name in Greek culture. 400 years before Mark writes his gospel, Plato wrote a dialogue uh, in which he described the human condition, in which Plato philosophizes what what does it mean to be a human being? Do you know the name of that dialogue? Timaeus. That was the name of Plato's 
dialogue where he describes what it is to be a human being. And Plato says the capacity, in Timaeus, he says the capacity that makes you and I human is our God-given gift to think. Reason is what sets us apart. It's what makes us human. And Plato believed that reason comes from our capacity to see the world rightly. He writes, in Timaeus, he writes this, sight, in my opinion, is the greatest benefit to us, for from sight we have derived philosophy. And there is no greater good than philosophy that will ever be given to mortals by the gods. And as far as those who are not as bright as Plato, he says, why should we even talk about them? They're not worth the great philosopher's breath. Plato got more specific in his ranking of human beings. I'm no scholar of Plato, so it's a bit simplistic, but not too much. Plato said that there are people who have souls of gold. They are the philosophers, the big thinkers, those who shape and practice and identify culture. And there are also people with souls like silver. It's the Olympic medal structure, right? They're silver. These are warriors and others who provide great service for the city. And then they're bronze people, servants, slaves, immigrants. They exist to serve the more important people. Plato said the epitome of the gold soul people were philosophers. How convenient for a philosopher, don't you think? Don't you think? How convenient, yes. All, all are human now, all are human, gold, silver, brown, all human, they're just not equally human. They're just not equally human. They don't share the same status. Now, what Plato observes is undeniable. People have different gifts. Uh, so when I lived in Florida, one of the things we would sometimes do is go to the Players' Championship golf tournament that was right, uh, right there in Sawgrass. It was not far from where we lived. And I remember one year we were there, I was standing on number 11 tee box. And if you've ever been or seen them on TV, they put little ropes around the tee boxes. That's, it lets you get close enough you can see their sweat and hear their conversation, but it, it tries to minimize the chance you're going to get hit in the head. And so they, they put they put little ropes around the tee box. I was on number 11. It's a par five. You got to get a really long tee shot to have a chance to go for the green in two. And Scott Hoke was, was teeing off and he hit his tee shot and it, it went way out there, <laughs> way out there. And as soon as he hit it though, he said, oh shucks or, or something, something like that. <laughs> and he said, I missed it. Now, he didn't miss it. He just didn't hit it square, so it didn't go as far as he wanted. And he knew as soon as he hit it, he wasn't going to go for the green in two. So, hence, he said, aw, shucks. And somebody in the crowd with me said, well, I'd take a drive like that every day of the week. And Scott Hoke said to him, that's why you're on that side of the rope. <laughs> True enough. When it comes to golf, there are folks on the inside of the rope and folks on the outside of the rope. 
Gifts are not distributed with equality. We have different gifts. Plato is absolutely right about that. But Plato also offered judgment on which gifts matter, which gifts make us human. And for him, the philosopher was the greatest of humans. And those who lacked great intelligence, well, he said, we don't really have to talk about them. Why waste our breath on them? But he does talk about them. And he doesn't say they're unintelligent. He says they're blind. There's a lot of Plato's thinking alive today. Adrian Woolridge, uh, in his book, The Aristocracy of Talent, he argues that the closest thing we have to a governing ideology in American culture is what he calls meritocracy. It's a, a word coined in the late 50s by sociologist Michael Young, who's trying to name the force that allows social mobility to occur in a free society. Woolridge argues in Western society, we, we admire athletic talent and on a few occasions pay a lot of money for it. We admire artistic talent and on a few occasions pay a lot of money for it. But for most folks, for most of society, he says the defining human quality, his language, the defining human quality is intelligence. And those who are smart and disciplined will succeed. They will become gold soul people. Michael Sandel, who teaches philosophy at Harvard, he offers this reflection. He says, meritocracy not only provides a justification for those who are on the top being on the top and those who are on the bottom being on the bottom, not only justifies that sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest, but Sandel argues that like Plato, we have attached status. Those on the top have more value and those on the bottom do not. Our humanity is ranked, he argues. I was in a conversation with one of you who works at our food pantry, volunteers at our food pantry. And she said, it is the highlight of my week. It is the best thing that I do. I love because the people that we serve are effusive in their gratitude. It's just, it's hard not to feel good about it. They're just so grateful. But then she paused and she said, but it can be hard too. I said, why? She says, because it seems sometimes just below the surface of that gratitude is an undeniable shame. They are ashamed of themselves. Sandel says they didn't come up with that on their own, but that the culture has told them they should be ashamed. If you are not successful, you're not only struggling, it's your fault. You're a lesser person. Now, maybe what Woolridge and Sandal make sense to you, maybe they don't. But what seems real to me is that every culture has developed a way of determining who matters and who doesn't. 
And this is where the rubber hits the road with Timaeus, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a son of Plato. He asked Jesus, a son of David, I'm a philosopher. I have a bright mind. Is not my intelligence what makes me worthy? Or am I missing something? Do I have a blind spot? So I asked my son if I could tell this story. He said, oh, Dad, you have to tell this story. Uh, He was living in New York, and he and a buddy decided they were going to take the summer off and go walk the Camino de Santiago. It's a pilgrimage path in the north of of Spain. When I grow up, I'm going to try it. He, He saved his nickels, and he bought his ticket. But in his apartment, he had some house plants, and he didn't want to just leave them there. So he asked a buddy at work, he said, if I I bring you the plants, will you take care of them? He said, sure. So he took him a couple. They were small, and his buddy could take them home. But he said, I've got one that's a little bit bigger. I think I probably should just carry it to your apartment. And so Nathan got his plant, and he walked down the street, and he got on the subway, and he's on the subway riding, holding this, this potted plant. He said, he noticed some people were kind of looking at him with the potted plant in his lap. He said, I, I, I admit it's a little unusual, but for goodness sakes, it's New York. You see everything in New York. He gets out of the subway. He walks to his buddy's apartment, knocks on the door, and his friend opens the door. And Nathan said, um, here, here's, here's the plants. Thanks for watching after this. And his buddy looked at him and said, you, you want me to take care of this? And Nathan said, Yeah. And he said, well, Nathan, how am I going to do that? And he said, well, just water it, get a little sun. He said, Nathan, the plant is dead. Our son is colorblind. He couldn't see. And he said all of a sudden he realized he'd walked through Manhattan and rode the subway carrying a dead plant. He, He had been watering a dead plant for weeks. Sometimes we think we see clearly, but we have a blind spot. My son and Bartimaeus knew it. Bartimaeus, son of Plato, says, I think I'm missing something. I am so smart. I am the son of Timaeus, the son of Plato, the philosopher. God gave me my mind. Doesn't using it set me apart? Doesn't set me above? And Jesus says, no, it doesn't. You aren't human because you can think. You're human because you can love. Now, Jesus is no anti-intellectual. We have been pondering his teaching for thousands of years. And I myself, every time I return to the Gospel of Mark, am amazed at the brilliance of this writer. And Mark is considered the least sophisticated of the Gospel writers. This is not a rejection of the stewardship of the mind. It's a reordering The mind, like every gift, is to be used in service of love. It's what Jesus says, love God with your heart, 
soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I think every culture develops ways to designate who really matters and who doesn't. Our culture does too, in a variety of ways. You think about it. You'll, you'll see it. Which means, as people of faith, we're a bit in tension with that cultural assumption that there are those who matter more than others. Because with God, there are no unimportant people. With God, there are no bronze people. We are just all God's children. And that truth challenges every culture, which means it challenges every Christian as well. There are no unimportant people to God. God loves all. And it is in loving like that that we live our humanity. And we don't always do it very well. But maybe, like Bartimaeus, if we allow the possibility that here and there we might have our own blind spots, maybe Jesus will open our eyes too. I bet so. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.